are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. treasures seek to gain the heavenly they will never pass away they will never pass away and everybody ought to hold to his hand hold to God's unchanging everybody ought to hold to his hand Hold to God's unchanging and you ought to build your hopes. You ought to hold to God's unchanging hand. Amen. Uh, Listen intently with me as I read our passage of scripture for this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided, guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I did great works. I built homes and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and produced them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which which to water the forest of growing trees. I brought bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. So also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my, my heart found joy in all my toil, which was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the effort that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Um, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it, even in such a almost just depressing passage of Scripture. Uh, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, even the not-so-warm and fuzzy parts. So what that means is that when we approach wisdom literature, uh, we approach it as, man, this is what thus saith the Lord for our good. Let the church say, for our good. I want you to meditate on that fact, because sometimes, you know, in a, maybe a church culture that most of you are perhaps embedded in or adjacent to, um, it's only Christ when it feels comforting and, and, and fun and warm and cozy. So I want to just intentionally invite you in, as we continue through our series in Ecclesiastes, to embrace some of the tension, embrace some of what you might experience reading some of these passages about the vanity of self-indulgence, recognizing that there is a lesson here that God wants us to learn, and ultimately it is for our good. Um, I want to deal with the concept of indulgence and the futility of its uh, pursuit. Um, Blaise Pascal says that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man and woman who cannot be satisfied, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. While many of us would probably nod our heads in agreement with that statement, Perhaps we miss the reality that we are consistently seeking to fill the God-sized void in our hearts with the pursuits of comforts, pursuits of happiness. So let, let, let this be just a, a tender warning not to place, um, not to make God's throne in your heart a love seat or a couch where you have other things sitting beside him. Ultimately, this passage shows us that um, the vanity or the futility of having ability and access, it shows us that freedom is not always the best thing. Um, Old Testament Israel, from which this writer is writing, is replete with this refrain displaying how some of its leaders sought the counsel of the Lord or refused to do so, the latter group being characterized as those who did evil in the sight, in the sight of the Lord or who did what was right in their own eyes. The lesson in all that... The lesson for this and all of our pursuits should start and end with the fact that we need to seek God's counsel in everything that we do. We all have hobbies. We all have things that we're engaged in that we, that we enjoy. Me and uh, Drew and, and, and Josh just got done talking about how Alabama's going to punish Ole Miss this coming up weekend. And, you know, even though that was probably hard for Josh to hear, I can tell he embraces it because he knows that it is for his good. Yet, yet... We all know that sometimes our passions for these rivalries can brim right over the edge of the glass and overflow to the point where we're kind of building a little bit of our identity, our self-worth, um, how we feel about who we've latched on to. Um, and, and I want to just suggest that maybe that's not what the design is for us as we engage in the Christian faith and practice. 
First Chronicles talks about Saul uh, in chapter 10 where the Bible describes him this way. He died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord given and consulted a medium for guidance. The Bible says he did not inquire of God. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, maybe you don't, but Saul, you know, he wasn't too bad of a guy. He accomplished a lot for the nation of Israel. He was the first king, you know. He, he unified the nation. He was a head taller than everybody else. He had the stature, had the look, right? But he messed up in a few ways. And because of these few things that he sought to put beside the Lord, perhaps really his own power, trying to maintain that, the Bible says the Lord rejected him, ultimately because he did not inquire of God first in all of his doings. So he had access and he had ability, and yet he did not inquire of the Lord in all of his, all of his doings. But the Bible describes Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings chapter 22 sort of as a video negative. He says of Jehoshaphat, um, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the counsel of the Lord. In the early portion of the Ecclesiastes passage, this person with ability, this person with access, unlimited resources, has given themselves to pursuing pleasure and productivity, but all on their own merit. For honest, we're all faced with that tension as you navigate the ups and downs of life, career success, academic success. There's a temptation to believe that, you know, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman, not recognizing that it is the Lord and his grace that have brought us from a mighty long way. What's noticeably absent in this Ecclesiastes passage is the pursuit of the Lord's counsel. Perhaps they are asking themselves, can we rather than should we? I want to ask you a question on this morning. How tethered to the Lord's counsel are you in your everyday decisions? Because, you know, we all can, you know, we want to wheel God in when it's a big decision. There's a disaster. There's a calamity. There's something that we've somehow messed up. Now we want to, hey, God, we want to wheel you in on this conversation. Now we want to invite him. But how often are you seeking the Lord's counsel in the everyday, the mundane? Perhaps the writer here in Ecclesiastes is more invested in the question of their own ability rather than the questions of the Lord's guidance, the Lord's counsel. Perhaps the Christian posture when engaging in everyday life, the ups and downs, the temptations, our ability, our access, our our lack of access, our question should be, what shall I render? What shall I offer unto the Lord? Because skill and access and ability can blind one to see the need that we ought to seek first the kingdom of God. And that doesn't always look like empire. It doesn't always look like the the building up of greater and bigger and more and grander. And for honest, I think that we are sort of given to that way of thinking. For it to be the way of the Lord, it has to look right. It has to sound right. It must be appealing to the eye. And that's been our problem ever since the Garden of Eden. Ever since we walked away and disobeyed God, we've always been led astray by what our eyes can see on the surface level. And what Ecclesiastes stands for, it really invites us to examine the fact that really the kingdom of God is sort of a, it's an upside down kingdom. It's not about how smart or how brilliant you are. It's about are you willing to seek the counsel and the wisdom of God? Nothing wrong with ability, nothing wrong with access, nothing wrong with power. And and there's redemptive aspects of this world under the sun on this side of heaven. But again, God will not share his seat with any of our comforts, our idols, or us. The Bible describes the heart as being wicked. 
Who can understand it? I've heard a great theologian say it this way. The heart ultimately is just kind of turned on itself. And so the reason we need a, a heart transplant is so that Jesus basically gives us a, he gives us a new heart to desire the right things and desire, to desire him. Ultimately, we've got all these hobbies and these things that we are sometimes drawn to, allegiances that we're sometimes given to. And here's the thing. They are good. But the right thing in the wrong place immediately makes it the wrong thing. Access and ability, the freedom to pursue our own comforts and interests with reckless abandon usually invites us into further isolation. Perhaps you find um, that you're integrated, ingratiated with a new group of like-minded people who have the same interests as you do, but outside of that one thing, there's nothing there to hold you all together. It's not real unity. So one of the warnings against pursuing wanton interest, wanton access to pleasure and comfort, is that it takes you away from the community in which God has commanded that we be a part of. See, in community where everybody's got different opinions, everybody comes from a different background, you've got to really work it. You've got to work at unity. And we see this displayed throughout the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas, they end up splitting because they can't agree on John Mark. Paul has to confront Peter to his face because of the way that he was engaging in, you know, um, communal activity, how it was out of step with the gospel. Because you got to work at unity. It's not something that just happens on happenstance. But you want one thing that can really hinder unity is all of us demanding that everyone fit into a mold that fits our own little neat interests. It's not real community if it's comfortable. Can I just say that? It's not real community when it's comfortable and everybody agrees with us and everybody dresses the way we ought to. I didn't wear my cargo shorts today, Ben. We're doing this for their good. I'm glad that I got somebody with me. When you latch and tether yourself alongside people who have this one common thing um, outside of Christ, you have this one thing in common with them. As soon as that thing disappears, so does the fleeting silhouette you have of community. Bonhoeffer describes the wish dream everybody has. Like when you walk in this church this morning, you, you had an idea. Whether you want to acknowledge or not, you had an idea of how church and worship ought to be. And the, the grace of God is that he takes your wish dream, he takes that, that wonderful wish dream, and he shatters it on the floor so that he might get the glory. It's a, really a grace gift when we see that the way that we think things ought to be are sometimes uh, laid at the feet of Jesus, recognizing that the kingdom belongs to the king. So I don't want to just sit here and warn against the dangers of wanton access and unlimited ability and, you know, the warnings of making comforts and, and uh, interests and idol before God. Because I also want you to understand that, uh, you know, we don't want to be brains on a stick here. Um, church culture, very tethered to um, apologetics and uh, all the five solas and wherever you land in terms of God's sovereignty, sometimes breeds this cynical posture within Christians that just are, you know, the killjoy at the barbecue. And I want to tell you something. Cynicism is not next to godliness. Listen to me. Cynicism and pessimism and sarcasm, that's not next to godliness. You're not more spiritual because you refrain from this thing or that thing. The writer here makes the fatal mistake of coming away from his pursuits. He comes from one extreme of giving himself to all things 
to another extreme where he's completely jaded. He says of laughter. So now laughter, the writer says, laughter is mad. He says, pleasure, what use is it? In verse 11, he says, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see this kind of posture in uh, the book of of Colossians, the church at Colossae, where Paul and Timothy come together as 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 a rapper and a producer, where Paul is the one writing the rhymes and Timothy is the one uh, spitting, he's producing the track, and they communicate to the church at Colossae that there's somebody in your church who's crept in, who's forgotten, who's really supposed to be in charge. Here in that church, you've got this person who's given himself to asceticism. Let the church say asceticism which is just this, this, this extreme refrain from all pleasures and all walks of life, thinking, oh, I'm more spiritual because, you know, I don't do this or I don't do that. So we don't want we we to go from one sister ditch of wanton access, wanton ability, productivity for productivity's sake, into this other sister ditch, this extreme of seeing life as bleak, hopeless. There's nothing good, enjoyable under the sun. Pascal mentioned earlier that our satisfaction can only be made known through Jesus Christ. But the jaded and cynical perspective that you see of this writer, this is the inevitable reality of a life that's absent of the joy of the Lord. It's the reason why we sing. It's the reason why we invite you to um, hear the command of God, which is to shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Sometimes you've got to practice and work at joy. I think Ben last week talked about how maybe there are a few seats in here that exist on these extremes. Maybe you're a person who just longs for a happy ending. You were so mad when they got rid of Fox Family. Maybe you're, you're uh, addicted to the Hallmark Channel. You always want everything to land neatly. And so Ecclesiastes and all of uh, wisdom literature is going to be hard to listen to. But maybe you're on the other extreme and you're just kind of, hey, you're, you're the killjoy. You're, you're all about suffering and, and uh, discipline and you never smile and you don't wear bright colors and you're just, just a person that just I'm, just, I'm just right here. I'm just in my box. Well, Ecclesiastes is a warning to not allow your legalism, feigned as commitment or zeal, to rob you of the joy of the Lord. I want to repeat this. Watch out for the baptized version of asceticism. This this version of legalistic, Pharisaic legalism that says that you're more holy or righteous because of what you don't do, what you don't eat, what you don't listen to, or what you don't watch. God has not deputized us to go around being the spiritual billy clubs of condescension and discouragement. So be mindful that sometimes offering just mere mental assent to the truths of Scripture, absent a pursuit of the Lord, uh, it leads one to this cold-hearted outlook suggesting that there is no good under the sun. And that's what the writer says, there is no good under the sun. I want to ask him something. Has he, has he ever heard a, a baby laugh? You ever felt that feeling after you get done, like cutting the grass? And you just look back like, man, you know, because cutting the grass is like one of the only things where you see immediate results. You're not going to tell me that's not from the Lord, man. That's a good gift. He says there's no good under the sun. Has he ever tasted grape Kool-Aid? 
or a Boston bud? No good under the sun? Have y'all noticed the weather change? Come on now. There's some good under the sun. The old black church says things about the joy of the Lord is my strength. It says that uh, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. You know, pleasure and access and comforts, those things are not Christian distinctives. You're not commanded to have access to power and social mobility. You are commanded to be joyful, though. You're commanded to be joyful in all things. If any of you have read the book uh, or watched the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, one of the main, the crux of that, of that story is how uh, Edmond Dantes is poor, son of a clerk, right? And um, Mondego, soon to grow up to be the count, is from an affluent family, but he, he grows in envy and jealousy at Edmund because Mondego has access to all things that a kid could want. Yet Edmund only has his, you know, his little doll or his little pony or his ball. He's just content. He's, he's happy with that. As we read Ecclesiastes, we see somebody who's just really discontented because he has access with all things and has really tried to find his ultimate hope in his access. There are indeed redemptive aspects to this life on this side of eternity. It doesn't make us more deep to frame this world as though it lacks any hints. Here it is of what awaits for us on the other side of eternity. We see through a dimly lit glass. So when you, when you walk outside and you, and you smell the fresh air, when you see the sunlight, when you hear your baby laughing, when you watch things that just look so beautiful, like that scoreboard on Saturday, Josh, understand that these are reflections of what we shall see in the greater reality, the greater eternity, because God is, he's won the ultimate victory. And so ultimately, I think that you and I have to work to remember the gospel. Because ultimately, God is not going to drag you kicking and screaming into loving him. Nope. Matter of fact, the scriptures are replete with examples that if you keep pursuing it, God will give you what you're asking for. As the Lord has given us volition, he will not force us into, into the proper pursuits. Seeking to have it all in the here and now will result in a sad existence, but an even worse eternity. Jesus says it this way. And when you pray, you must not, like, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners, that others might see them, he says it this way, they have received their reward. That's what the writer says in Ecclesiastes. My reward for my toil was my toil. That's where I found my joy. Jesus also says that when you fast, don't be like the other hypocrites. Don't just disfigure your face and show men that you're fasting. Why? Because you're receiving your reward, your reward right there. He'll give you exactly what you're asking for. Or how about uh, the rich man and, and poor Lazarus? Isn't this a perfect depiction of how Jesus says, uh, child, remember that in your lifetime you received all the good things, the money and the cars, the cars and the clothes. But Lazarus, in like manner, had all the bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And you know what is a shame? It's a shame right now because there are some people in this room who are reticent to hear a message that cautions us against wanton, um, unbridled expenditures and pursuits of the, the greater and the more out of this 
anti-ascetic. I don't, I don't want you, I don't want to sound like I'm legalistic. I don't want to sound like um, wealth or access to power is a bad thing. It's not. But if we, were be, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we land on the spectrum where we're open, we're exposed to the temptation of allowing it to take the wrong place in the throne of our hearts. Beside all of this, the Bible says, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none can cross from here to us. This is the sad reality of someone who's trying to find all of their joy in the things of this world and not on the solid foundation that is Jesus Christ. Inevitably, even on this side, it creates a chasm. And you can notice the difference between people who find you know, their identity and what they wear, what they drive, or you know, how much money they make, or what they can produce, or what they can do with their hands, or how hard they work. And a person who's just simply, man, I'm just, I'm just joyful in the Lord. Ultimately, knowing Christ, it's a joy that transcends the pleasures of this world, because in the words of C.S. Lewis, yes, Hunter, I am doing it. C.S. Lewis says we are created for a better reality. We're just pilgrims passing through. Our hope that rests on his shoulders, Jesus' shoulders, rests on his promises, it's a hope that can't be shaken. It's this hope that grounds us when the storms of life and our appetites in this world swell. Remembering the gospel that's the language that Paul uses when he talks to the church at Corinth, a church that, you know, was rife with the temptation to uh, give themselves over to pleasure. Pleasure to be the comfort and the temptation to be the very best, to, to build the most, or the, the temptation to, to do the least, this self-deprecating posture. Paul says it this way, godliness with contentment is great gain. A great illustration for this is uh, Jim Halpert and versus Daryl Philbin in table tennis. Um, they're playing in the, and downstairs in the warehouse, and you know, Jim just cannot beat Daryl. You know, it's getting to the point where um, Daryl's then girlfriend is talking smack to Pam because her boyfriend can't beat Daryl. And so now Pam, because she's got her identity wrapped up in how well Jim plays, is like, hey, Jim, you, you got to practice because I can't keep listening to this. But what does Jim say? I want you to see this. Jim, just no fight. Ew, I can't beat Daryl. See, see, that's the sign of a person who's content in where he is. He doesn't find his identity in being able to thrash Daryl because he's just playing for the love of the game. You've all heard the passage in Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ, right? Spoken before a football game or before a rally, because it's always I can do all things through Christ. When we say all things, we're really talking about I can do good things through Christ. I can do fun things through Christ. I can do things through Christ that give me some level of glory. But that's the opposite of what Paul is saying here in that passage. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many of us can say that? How many of us can say that, man, I've learned how to be content even when it's not going my way? 
when I find myself on the rough side of the mountain, when the, when the ball is just not rolling in my direction. Christ's words regarding the coming kingdom and the better place being prepared is this promise of a already a not yet over against this seize the day, get it all here and now. This series in Ecclesiastes helps us to not just see God rightly and know him for the greatness that he is, but it helps us to position and posture ourselves before a holy and righteous God the right way, not making him a tool for us to do whatever we want to do. Because sometimes we'll, we'll, you know, we'll follow our own dreams and uh, take our own pursuits and then kind of just slap a Jesus bumper sticker on it and say things like, well, you know, God saw fit. But I think what the Old Testament posture always gives us is the proper framing of people created in his image. Uh, the Psalms would say it this way. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so we ought to always position ourselves as those who are recipients of grace, worshiping a holy and a righteous God. This Sunday, I just kind of want to let the text breathe a little bit. And I want you just to walk away asking yourselves a few questions. How am I seeking the Lord's counsel in my everyday decisions? How am I seeking the Lord's counsel in my everyday decisions? Do I have someone or something on a love seat with the Lord? Am I willing to allow the Lord to sit on a throne of my heart? Do I know Christ? And is that, is that producing a joy in him that helps me to be content no matter the circumstance? It's a sad reality for someone who does not know Christ because for them, every answer to that question is no. The wisdom in this book holds up a mirror and helps us to see that we are definitely in need of a savior. And that's why we gather on a Sunday morning. That's why we sing these songs. Because literally, Jesus is better than any comfort, any gift, and he's greater than all of our wisdom. Let us pray. We don't shy away from your word. We don't, uh, even though we, we feel the tension of language in this book that invites us into maybe wanting to shy away, not hear the, maybe the gentle, gentle correction of our framework, Lord, but together, even as one body, God, and in various ways, in various areas of our life, we, we lay those things down before you just as, as humble recipients of your grace. More than anything, I, I think, Lord, our hearts cry together is that we want to be joyful in you. We want you to be the source of all of our joy and all of our excitement and all of our zeal. We want you to rescue us, Lord, 
from deep legalism that frames the world as just black and white, dreary, rainy day that there's nothing good. But we also want you to rescue us, Lord, from a, a, a sad reality of a person that seeks to find their ultimate hope in these things. You are good and what you do is good. And therefore, the precious souls in this building, created in your image, provide us with enough reason to look at you and say thank you. Help us as we read through this book together as a body. Help us to become more and more like the church you're coming back for. Create us more into your image. Conform us into your image. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham. 